From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back. This is our full version, two hours, even though we're virtual in the time of pandemic. We've been doing this. We've got the whole crew here. We will be here for two hours, including an interview at the last quarter. Shane Jensen's here. Eric Bradlow is here. Audie Weiner is here for at least the first part of the show. Cade Massey co-hosting here with my colleagues and friends, longtime Wharton Moneyball collaborators. Guys, we're going to get to sports, but we have some important you know, life and world issues to talk about. First, we spent a lot of time talking about the election rolling up to uh, the election last week. We're about a week past the initial returns anyway. Um, curious, lots to pay attention to on the analytics side, on the polling side, on the forecast side. What have you been thinking about now that we've seen how the 2020 U.S. presidential election has gone down? That political polls are garbage before an election. <laughs> That's what I've been thinking about. Garbage, um, garbage yeah, is a strong garbage. is a strong word. Garbage. You're taking it. You're you're pitching them out. All yeah, together. I mean, I I I I was glued to 538 throughout the last week, and I th- feel like they've done a really amazing job of kind of basically like you know kind of their prediction models for taking the return, you know, the actual kind of counting as it was coming in and projecting from that, and that's because it's actually based on real votes. You know, as opposed to like trying to guess at how people actually are going to vote. Audie talked about this, you know, last week when he was kind of, I think, one of the, I, I guess, the most cautious about about the 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 uh, the the predictions based on polling. That the sampling frame for polls, political polls, is just so off and 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 kind of small and not representative, um, and it's not even clear what it's actually the population is trying to get at and. So I, I just think they're kind of garbage. And for next, okay. so, so for four years from now. Yeah. Let me also follow that up. I think, I think. Well, hold on, Adi, one second, one second, yeah. one second. I want to just make sure we understand what Shane just said, because he's calling out something you said last time. And you've probably said it before, but you did. It was almost like the last word going into the election, which, by the way, you gave us wisdom at the last moment going into the 2016 election as well. So we're going to maybe pay more attention to Adi in the last hour before the election next year. So uh, Shane's saying that you really question the validity of the polls based on it's too, it's too difficult to get to a representative sample. And they're just basing it on this really weird, difficult sample. Uh, Shane just said the term sample frame. So I want to make sure that we understand what sample frame means. So yeah. back, back to you, Adi. Let me, let me explore that a little bit. The basic idea is the population of the people who are voting. And we don't know that because that doesn't actually happen until the day of the election. Or in this case, it, of course, happens before it as well. Uh, but the sampling framework is a set of people who have potential to be included in your sample. And there's often a very big gap between uh, the sampling frame and the population. Those people are people who you'll never include no matter what because they don't answer their phones. They aren't reachable. Uh, those are people that you try to proxy their vote using carlets. And that has become um, increasingly the, the thing that's been being done. Back in the old days, and this wasn't even that long ago, random digit dialing had a 40% success rate. So that meant that you really were much closer to a, a population estimate than when you did random digit dialing and that the corrections, the post stratification, they call that when you kind of line up the known quantities with the sample quantities, um, those were much smaller and they were more useful. And so today we really have this enormous gap. We could call it specification or, or mismatch between sampling frame and population. And what we've replaced it with is a, a rather poor model for making post stratification adjustments. Mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the final thing, which is making this so hard 
is frankly, the elections are coming are so darn close. Yeah. Right. And then when things are as close as they are, those small differences are magnified in importance. Okay. So I want to get to you one second, Eric, but I want to make sure in case we don't touch this point, you're probably about to jump in here, but um, it's one thing to have a, um, a problematic model or a noisy model, but, but two elections in a row, it's the errors have fallen on the same side. And so it raises the obvious question of whether it's not just difficult and problematic, but biased. So is the problem, is the sample frame, not just, um, unrepresentative, but systematically biased in one direction or the other for some reason. So at least let's have that on the table. But Eric, you were trying to jump in. No, no, no. I was just going to build on your point, Cade, um, which is Adi spent some time right now talking about the difference between the sampling frame and the population. But let me tell you why this problem also differs than many problems I work on in marketing. So you have a company that has 50,000 customers and you send out a cert. Well, all right. They already know who their customers are. It's a fixed list. Now, we know who the voters are, but we don't know who's going to show up. So there's a second form of uncertainty that you brought up, Cade, which is on election day and or mail-in ballots, who is even going to vote in the election? So that is another source of error, which, by the way, does not exist in most sampling frame sampling problems that I deal with in marketing, where we know the population list. Matter of fact, there can't be anybody else. That is the list. So that's not uncertain. You just have a response problem, but you yeah. don't have a who's the who's the population of voters problem. That's, and, and so we have and, both here. And Audie mentioned that you know you did these models are poor because, you know, they try and do like kind of these po- po- like these waiting kind of corrections to sort of say like, oh, well, let's try and make sure that, you know, if we want a more representative sample, we'll make sure the Democrat, you know, if, if, if Hispanics were underrepresented in our in this particular one, we'll upweight them so that, you know, it's more representative. But again, all those strat- these waiting strategies assume that like, you know, Hispanics are this like, you know, kind of, you know, kind of homogeneous kind of behaving mm-hmm. group. And, you know, I mean, obviously we saw on election night that, you know, Hispanics, like, say, for example, in Miami are voting in very different ways than Hispanics were in Arizona. Yeah, and I'll follow that up. But the, a Hispanic who's, who's included in a poll because you were able to reach them are probably I think this is, is it's speculation, but I think it's possibly true, quite different on average than than Hispanic voters who you're not able to contact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I just want to say. Here's the analysis I haven't yet seen about the election. And I want to build on the two topics we've been talking about. One is, let's just take a simple example, men and women. So is the number of people that voted, the fraction of men and women who voted, is that different than what they expected? Or conditional on you're a woman or a man, is who you voted for different than what you expected? So I haven't seen an analysis that tries to decompose the error into, was it the voting rates by group that was different or was it conditional on your group who you voted for was different yeah i, I think people are speculating about both sources of error. and maybe both yeah and but let me throw this let me throw one election in particular we are going to know these things eventually i just want to point out that and I'm, i don't know whether the country has the attention span to wait for the definitive answer or even digest the definitive answer when it's known but there's going to be a lot more known within you know a few weeks or months as we actually unpack the the kinds of questions you just asked Gary. so I, I wanted to point to the election for in the senate uh for for a senator so susan collins who's a who's a longtime senator and incumbent usually you would you'd expect to sort of coast to a victory she was uh rose to national prominence in the kavanaugh um 
confirmation. She's considered one of the most centrist Republicans in Congress and Senate. And she's come out uh, already, already saying, you know, she's definitely been the least Trump supportery, if you will, if that's a word, of all of all senators in the Republican side. She was predicted to lose uh, lose by a lot. I think mm-hmm. that was the pre the pre election forecasts were two to one, maybe in probabilities. Um, she won by a lot, and this is not a uh, this is Maine for God's sakes, right? It's not, if this if you couldn't I couldn't imagine a sort of an easier kind of level of ish playing field than Maine. Um, if I had to do my forecasting, small, fairly homogeneous, yet it was massively screwed up. If we can't understand what went wrong in Maine, I can't imagine how we can figure out what goes wrong in Philadelphia or Florida. Well, so this is kind of what I'm I'm curious about. They thought they learned. Pollsters and poll aggregators like Nate Silver thought they learned the mistakes of 2016 and adjusted for 2020. Things like education, you know, they knew that they were undersampling the less educated. And so, as you said, they build little algorithms to adjust for that stratification, to adjust for that. Are, are, are we just going to chase new mistakes and, and come up with new like band-aids yep. now? Yep, we will. We'll, we'll chase. We'll, we'll, we'll divide it up. So now our new model models like Puerto Ricans different than Mexican Hispanics, different than Cubans. And, you think and we'll still miss because yeah. it's, it's just too sophisticated. We don't have the kind of data to do that kind of sophisticated model. And as Audie kind of pointed out, and we kind of lost in the discussion, to be honest, in, in a lot of the states that matter, it's going to be so close. If, if, if the result actually is going to be coming down to like the tens of thousands of voters anyway, there's okay. no way we could hit that. Okay, so but this is this is a good general question for this group because at what point do you throw the baby out with the bathwater? At what point is the baby not worth keeping anymore? Because it's it's weird and and it feels wrong to say that these data just don't serve any purpose. I'd rather not look at them at all. And that's what I'm hearing you guys say. And so at what at what point do you do that? And this we're talking about the election, but there, that comes up with other data as well. At some point you say there's, it's as misleading as it is valuable, and so we're better off not looking at it at all. Let me just comment. Uh, Kate, I think I've talked about this before. The first ever academic paper I ever wrote, ever, was when I was working at the Educational Testing Service, and we were talking about um, the name of the paper is Statistical and Logical Considerations When Rescoring Tests. And it turns out, depending on the measurement error, these are subjectively rated things you'd be better off not scoring them at all. And that's exactly what this paper is about. And so back to Adi's point, let's imagine that most races are between 3% and minus 3% one way or the other. What level of precision would you need in the measuring instrument for this to be a valuable predictor of what's going to go on? Because you know you can make an error when it's a 70-30 race, and, ah, no harm, no foul. But if you're in a 53-47 race, then you know a measurement error of three, four, five percent can make a huge difference. And by the way, that's what we talked about last week. I said, and by the way, I turned out to be quite accurate in this following sense. I said it was off by two percent for Hillary, and Joe Biden could could survive basically double the amount of error. And you know what? We saw double the amount of error as in 2016. And he's won the election, but in four or five different states, you can see the margins between, let's call it 10,000 and 100,000, which is less than 1% of the vote. So I want, I want to get to the, to the postmortem on, ele- on our predictions in a minute, but I want to stay with this general topic because it is such an important and general topic. When just the idea that you would sometimes be better off not looking at the data, it's not the case that 
some data is always better than no data. That's what you're telling me. It's not always the case that some data is better than no data. In fact, in, in, in very specific cases, you'd be better off not looking at it at all. And you think, so one, that exists. That's interesting. It's a little sobering. And then, and, and in particular, you're saying when measurement error is sufficiently large, especially when the, 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 uh, the decision space is pretty narrow or that whatever. The margin of victory is yeah. the margin of victory is so small. Okay. So do we have, do we, have we represented that properly? Have we represent anything else to say about that general no, situation? I, I would say that in this particular situation, there was probably some information, information in the derivative of the polls. I don't think people concentrated too much on it. What do you mean by the derivative of the polls? So I take a look at Pennsylvania where the Democrat, the Biden advantage was much bigger than it ended up um, in the polls. And we saw that with Clinton as well. That was forecasting a a closer race than the actual margins, the the pre-election polling margins indicated. And I don't know whether this is a broad trend or something that you can actually well, I mean, nationally well, I, I, nationally it's kind of hard because there almost was no derivative in the polls right at a national yeah. level it at was a national level there was bad. not but at individual states there were and i can tell well, you that so, make sure i understand you're just talking about the change the last the late time, time in the in the late change saying that a month ago biden was maybe an eight percent favorite in pennsylvania and yeah. uh, the day before the election he was four percent that's right okay so i do think you have to be they they uh, we, we talked about this a little bit and there was some concern about pollsters hurting in the same way that stock market analysts heard, yeah. people don't want to be too far from the group average. And 538 carries so much weight that the risk averse strategy is to kind of find yourself close to 538. So the very late breaks might not be informative. But if you if you open the horizon a little bit and said, okay, where does this go in the last week? Where does it go in the last month? Maybe the last month, you're saying there might be information in that. Are you hypothesizing, Adi, based on one case, or do you know that more generally it's true? Uh, no, I, I'm hypothesizing. I, I just looked at a few cases, and that seemed to be anecdotally a trend. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust what I have to say. It's more a hypothesis uh, generation uh, um, conjecture, if you will. Okay, but but what I okay, I'm just struck. I want to. We'll leave it. We'll leave it. But I'm struck by this idea. It's just so sobering for an analyst to say this. But if it's true, it's important that we sometimes say it. That some data isn't always better than no data. And I would like to understand the conditions under which that's true. And one of the things you're saying that we haven't emphasized here in the last five minutes is when the sampling frame for those data are are really questionable. And so if there are really, if there are selection issues, this is the general yeah. thing about data. And if there I are selection even, issues in, in how you ended up with the data you have, then that could be very misleading. That could be systematically misleading. And it's not really a some data versus no data scenario here. It's uh, do we add polling data on top of all the other stuff that we could use to predict elections i mean okay, i can pre- I, I mean i can i i'm using i can predict how t- texas is going to vote in 2024 yeah, and i'm right. I, you know i i mean i don't need polling data to make that prediction i can form a model and yeah. does polling data specifically add anything on top of it yeah you know just like and you know in that framing we do this in sports all the time get yeah. you know your prediction of like how nfl teams are going to do in the next season is it worth pre- building in their preseason? Like back when we had preseason games, was it worth building those games in? Yeah. Probably not. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good. That's really good, actually. And we know that, you know, 538 has those models. They have yeah. the kind of juiced up models that have factors beyond the polls. Something that jumps out to me there, Shane, is I would, you know, from one of the things we, we think happened in the election is that the, the GOP just turned out better than a lot of people thought they were. And the, 
the left was so animated, has been animated since Trump won four years ago, it was hard for people in the left to imagine that people in the right were as animated as they were. It turns out based on turnout data that it looks like they were. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if we could get more mileage out of basic turnout models and just level of conviction, enthusiasm, engagement, just level of feeling. Well, that's why I said, suppose, yeah. suppose, Kate, I told you, obviously, you only know it now, not before election. Suppose I told you the turnout data. How accurate would you be on the predictions? That's my point about decomposing it into a turnout error measurement problem versus a conditional probability measurement yeah. error problem. Good. My guess is it's mainly in the turnout, but we'll see. You're right. We have to wait to see the final numbers. I, well, the, the, I want to I want to say what my takeaway from this conversation is because I've I've came come around to it and seeing it as a selection data selection problem. And that's the general issue. This, so we we deal with polls once every four years. We deal with selection of data every day of our lives. And whenever we have reasons to question this, the uh, the the unbiasedness of the selection, then you might start wondering whether some data is actually better than no data because a super biased selection process would lead you to rather not have the data at all because it could be so misleading. Um, is that fair, Adi? Is that, is that a reasonable way to kind of try to generalize what we saw here? Yeah, I mean, I've always been suspicious of trying to, of recognizing that negative, that, that data can be actually damaging because it produces a negative result. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what we have. We have a, I'm actually curious to dig into Maine a little bit and whether or not turnout models predict uh, its discrepancy mm -hmm. and... Um, but I don't think it does. I think there was a really a massive, you know, mismatch there. And I hard to hard pressed yeah. to believe that there was a, a terrible turnout, uh, uh, um, inconsistency or unpredictability unpredictability in Maine. Let, let's let's talk about what did you learn from your own prediction? I had it exactly right. And then when I once I heard your guys' predictions, I changed. I did an analysis of the <laughs> of the close states. No, no, you said what did I learn, Kate? I didn't go first. I listened to the predictions of the close states. I looked at the predictions of the close states. My prediction was 305 electoral votes. And then at the end, I said, you know what? I'm going to go with 330. So that was my prediction. My prediction was 330. I'm not backing away from it. So what was the mistake there? What did you learn from that, from that era? Well, because my analysis said 305. I would have been exactly right. So why did you, why did you go? What are you because not going to do heard, next time? I heard Adi and Shane go before me. <laughs> you're not going to, your, your takeaway is don't listen to us. Really? No, 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 no. Not listening not to I, me is a lesson you should have learned I mean, is prior that the lesson to what you're getting? Because I said, I said 310. And uh, I thought I was, I, I can't remember where I went in the order. So Maybe you Shane went said last. 390. No, I, 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 I messed it up big time. And I, I mean, you are, I already said what I learned from this whole thing is that Political polls are garbage. I mean, you know, or even right. more garbage than I already. So, are, are you basically saying, uh, Eric? Can I can I, can I can just still? You should listen more to me. Is that what you're? What I'm hearing? Yeah, that, that is what I'm saying. <laughs> more to Adi and less to Kate and Shane. I was the most. Uh, I, I was the that. most on the side that Biden would win big. And to be fair, I was trying to play a little bit of the provocative pundit. But there were a couple of other things going on. I, there was a story to be told where that would be the case. And I remember I, I kind of laid out this whole narrative. And this is the danger of narratives because you your mind loves narratives. It makes a bunch of otherwise incoherent facts fit together. And I got a little bit carried away with the narrative. But there is the, there is the wishful thinking piece too. And I've done a lot of research on how optimism affects judgment. And in general, and we've seen, you know, when someone tells you they're 90% sure of something that they want to happen, you should consider it something like 70% likely to happen. You need to discount pretty healthily, maybe 20% 
a person's confidence whenever it's in the prediction that they want to occur. And I think this is something that trips people up over uh, again and again. Guys, the other big issue, of course, right now is COVID. There's been some big news on the COVID-19 front. Do you have some reactions to especially the Pfizer study um, or any other news on the COVID front? I have great reaction to the Pfizer one. I think that's fantastic news. I don't think anyone can interpret that any different way. But a little bit of context, my expectation um, was that a vaccine would be 50% effective. So what that means for a very small study, and it's small only in the sense that only about 94 of the 40,000 people who were inoculated, well, half were inoculated, half were given a placebo, um, were infected. Um, That just shows you how difficult it is to do a study like this. There just isn't, I mean, as much as virus as there is around, there isn't enough. Um, and, uh, and if it had gone two to one, I would have been, um, that would have been the numbers that I expected to see. What they ended up going was nine to one, or potentially a little bit more. They haven't actually released it uh, formally. So uh, I'm not really 100% sure um, what, uh, uh, what, what, what the actual numbers are, but they were certainly far higher than I would have expected. But well, Adi, so, oh, sorry, let me ask you a question, because one of the uncertainties that maybe you could help me clear up about the study was 90 percent, though, but for what population? And yeah. so is it like is this study powerful enough to make a statement about people above the age of 70 who are the high risk population? I don't think they released that information. They didn't. We know. They, did, they haven't broken and, it down yet. And I mean, the part I'm kind of waiting for before I get even, I mean, I'm cautiously optimistic, I guess. The part I'm waiting for is the safety data too, right? Because none of that has been released. Like no, the side effects, if anything there were, like uh, that. If there were substantive side effect, they wouldn't have gotten to this point. Substantive. Okay. What are you talking about? I mean, I always get the mini flu and I take the flu vaccine. So that's the kind of thing that they would ignore. I think they're talking about some kind of major reaction. Yeah. Um, would actually, and I, I mean, think you know, like, like it gives yeah. like a 0.5% of the population multiple sclerosis or something like <laughs> that. I'm not sure that they would have detected yet. I'm just wondering also if what, what it's also an indicator of, I think another reason for optimism, and Adi, you've been obviously taking a look at this is, so let's even imagine the Pfizer drug for all populations doesn't turn out to be 90 plus percent effective. Well, right. there's also the Moderna drug coming, which is based on a similar um, approach. There's other approaches. Maybe what ends up happening is I, I, you know, I'm seriously saying this, maybe what ends up happening coming April, May, whenever it's out, we end up getting four or five shots of you take this approach and this approach and it's some like like they, what they do for HIV today, which is a cocktail like of approach. But Eric, I mean, we we don't even have enough shots to give everybody in the world one, much less four or five. I mean, it would be two or three years probably before we could no, provide. No, no. That so and is, is, what is Operation there... Warp Speed has been doing is they've been investing in it. By the way, Pfizer's. Let's be clear: this Pfizer drug is not part of it, but. It could be they may end up having hundreds of millions of doses of the Moderna drug, which is so it is possible come April or May, they could have three different ones with similar efficacies that all work in different ways, which when used in combination, which, by the way, we have no idea if there's there's no data on that. But when used in combination could give a larger population a very large effectiveness. It's probability of uh, is probability of side effect additive and the number of shots you get. I don't know. Jane's yeah. bringing some real skepticism about side effects. Well, no, I mean, it's just, you know, again, I, it, it's, yeah, I mean, again, I, 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 I would frame myself as cautiously optimistic. I'm just, I guess, pontificating about the cautious part of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what, what makes this very difficult is that this is not a disease that affects everybody the same way. Right. So hard to talk into anybody who's really not at risk of, of serious complication or illness from this virus to take a vaccine. 
Right. But it's necessary to, 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 to cut the spread. Right. Well, you're talking about another, I mean, we've got multiple complications. One, we need an efficacious drug, but then we need a distribution plan and then we need compliance on the far end. So there are a lot of hurdles to clear before we start really making a dent in things. But this is, I mean, this is the best news we've heard since these trials have begun, right? But I, I do think, I, I mean, look, let's approach this in the same way that we looked at poll data. And even right. before we got it wrong in the end, I mean, I would say temper your expectations. I think this 90 is going to end up being something less than 90, given that that's the overall, don't show you the details. We've got lots of questions. We'll address those later kind of number, right? I mean, but the nice thing is 90 is so much higher than we expected. 90 is so much higher than you really need for an effective immunization that it's okay. We've, had, we've got some room to come back on that. Is that a reasonable way to think about that? I mean, the, the, the famous ones, the what are, what are the famous, like, what's the success rate on a flu shot? What's the success rate on? Oh, uh-huh. Flu shot, shot is about 50% effective. Yeah, it's right. Much worse. That's kind of what I thought we were going to be, the world we were going to be well, in. It's a, it's a coronavirus, so it's not, uh, the measles vaccine, though, is far more effective. That's over 90%. Over yeah. 90? Okay. Yeah, but I remember when I first was uh, reading about, you know, properly well-designed randomized experiments, and uh, the polio vaccine is used as a classic example of using historical controls, observational controls, and getting very different results when you do a, a double-blind study. Uh, what struck me, of course, was how ineffective uh, um, the vaccine was. I think it was only about uh, 50% effective. Right. But it was sufficiently right. effective to drive it out. I mean, that's the goal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Adi, you know how many years it took, though, to do so. It, uh, it was a while, right, I guess. Is that- it was, I think it was almost a decade. It was a yeah. very long period of time to drive That's it right. up. Actually, Kate's comment about- Smallpox is similar, I think, right? Smallpox, very similar. It's a very interesting point. So it might take, I'm making it up, three to five years, given compliance, the effectiveness for certain populations before, put this way, but let me say the following, before the CDC removes its recommendation from social distancing and not wearing masks, it could be mm-hmm. multiple years. Uh, mm-hmm. Exactly, which is why I think that we need to have some serious rethought about what the right uh, governmental response is, because social distancing and masking is not going to destroy the economy. But, but you know, a complete shutdown of so many businesses is, and I don't think that can go on for three to five years. Well, let's talk about that because there's, there's new data all the time. A a nature article was released today, I believe that used um, tracking cell phone tracking data to identify as they built a, they built an epidemiological model that was informed by people's movement. So they built this network and fed that network information into the model and this was back from March and May, and this is millions of people, millions of observations. And they found that 10% of the locations where people went were responsible for 85% of the predicted infections. And it is all the stuff that we've been talking about, restaurants, gyms, hotels. I haven't heard hotels in the conversation, but restaurants, gyms, and hotels. So it's back to this idea that we've hit on periodically over time that these the, the nature of this distribution is that there are these super spreader events or super spreader people, not so much, but it's super spreader events. And if we could focus the efforts, Audie, these public policy efforts, if we could focus them on the right events, mm-hmm. then we could limit those, but keep the rest of the economy going. So for example, one of the things they talk about in this article, even, or an, adja- an adjacent article was, look, if you knock it down to 25% capacity, that hurts a restaurant at peak. But most of the day, they're, they're probably at 25%. So they have many normal business hours, and then the only really bites, it only constrains certain times of day. There are considerations like that. 
that scientifically informed might lead to very different policies than we've had so far. Yeah, I just think it is going to sort of like, I mean, think of the symphony or something like that. I mean, at what capacity does the symphony have to operate to actually be a financially viable entity? Well, you know, and, or, and the scientific question of what, you know, this was Audie's question from last week. This is something we don't know. We don't know in a closed room um, for a long period of time, right? We know closed is bad. We know a long period of time is bad. Can we, what, how far do we not need to knock down, you know, capacity before we're yeah. safe? Yeah, so and I, you know, I'd, I think I'd love this... to know the answer to whether or not you can have an opera, and there's my predilection, yeah. uh, 50% capacity, which would be very nice, um, with everyone wearing masks, with a nice circulation system, whether that really is a risk. And I don't know the answer to that. And, 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 and also condition on the fact that the median age for that particular activity is probably like 75. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just looking out for people, Audie. Yeah, I'm looking sure out for our vulnerable populations here. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, so it's it's daunting. I mean, I this idea that it might be, and, and this is the whole next phase. We haven't got the immunization yet, but once we have it, the whole next phase is forecasting when you know we'll be safe, and it is daunting to think it might be years. Given, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, I think it is going to be like industry by industry. Like, will education? You know, I mean, I kind of, I guess, maybe part of my cautious optimism is like universities will probably be maybe on like kind of one of the first waves of these vaccinations, just because you know, I mean, they're very financially incentivized to get back to normal operations, and so maybe we can kind of have a university system that's kind of more fully operational before some of these other things. Well, you know, we're biased in that way, mm-hmm. uh, but, but this goes to Audie's question of, it generally calls for some strategic consideration at the public policy level. And if we're going to be stuck in this world for the, another couple of years, we need some strategic consideration. So how, what, how do we ramp things back up? What do, who do we prioritize? Some are obvious. So the most dangerous, the, the ones in most fragile conditions, healthcare workers. But then after that, it's less obvious and we need yeah. to have some kind of plan. Well, I, I have to say that it's a, it's a return on the investment, if you will. So maybe not so much university professors, since we seem to be able to do our job more or less without too much decline in the virtual setting. But, you know, elementary schools have to get back to business. No, that's a great point. I think edu- when I, 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 I painted education with a very broad stroke and a very biased stroke towards kind of college education where I operate. But like, yeah, no, I mean, I agree. Like getting kind of, you know, the, the younger students back to school is, is by far a better return on investment in terms of the, the kind of difference in virtual versus uh, in-person education. And I can tell no you doubt. that the biggest obstacles to bringing them back widely nationally are, are the teachers. So if we can inoculate the teachers mm-hmm. and everyone else who works in those buildings, kids, not so much. They're not so necessary. We really could um, bring back education and much, much more rapidly. And so I'd like to see them be targeted. Um, and uh, and I yeah. mean, there's sort of the secondary that would kind of get a lot of the indirect effects we worry about, too, you know, because we also worry about kind of the schools being open right now because the teachers get it and they're more likely to pass it on to an elderly member of the family. Right. I mean, I think kids are probably a little bit more easy to isolate from elderly, you know, kind of our more vulnerable populations as well. Right. I also would argue people who do who do live with the elderly relatives should be inoculated. All right. Lots of ways. Lots of ways to think about it. Well, it's, it's, there's going to be a whole other stage in front of us and playing out the impact of these um, immunizations, playing out the impact of compliance issues, priorities at the public policy level. These are huge questions and they're all in front of us. Yeah, all the big questions that are, we're soon to get passed, we, it just introduces a whole new set of them. But let's at least celebrate 90%, at least top line, as reported by Pfizer, 90% efficacy is a great starting place 
for these big trials. All right, guys, that has been a long, substantial first quarter. We still have three. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second quarter now after a healthy discussion of election analytics and COVID analytics, we move to the more enjoyable <laughs> football and sports side of, uh, of the show. Before we get to football, let's talk about some other events that are going on. We've got Shane Jensen in here. We've got Eric Bradlow in here. Audie Weiner is going to step away here for a little while. But um, guys, Masters is coming up. There's some tennis bouncing around. Eric, you're 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 short on 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 uh, Nadal. Is that right? You're you're you've been playing this aging game for a couple of years now, and I feel like you're getting more and more confident about it. Yeah. So I mean, if you look at Nadal's performance this season, the only tournament he played well in was the French. Um, he didn't play well at the Australian, particularly well. Uh, to win the, I mean, he played well, but he got just absolutely destroyed by Djokovic. Um, he didn't, didn't, didn't play for a while. Um, he played a bunch of clay court warm-up tournaments, didn't win any of them. Um, he just got, he destroyed Djokovic and the French. And then he got beaten just recently in the Paris Masters um, by Alexander Zverev. And so my comment is, is that um, I think we're now at a point where I'm going to make a prediction. And it could be wrong. I don't think he's winning any other majors now, but the French. Okay. So I think he will win the French maybe two or three more times. I think, he, as we know, he's tied with uh, Federer, so he's got twenty. I don't think Federer is going to win any more majors. Um, I think Nadal is at twenty. I think he'll end up at maybe twenty-two because of the French. Um, and unless he decides in the years forward just to play the clay court season, like he might do what Federer did, but in reverse, you know, Federer basically doesn't play the clay court season anymore. If you tell me the next five years, Nadal only plays four months of the year and he only plays the clay court season, he could win the French each of those years for the next five years. But I don't think he's going to win a major because I think, again, I don't think he can sustain it for seven matches on hard courts anymore. And I think just the power of the younger players, he, he even said during the match, to return these guys' serves nowadays, he has to be eight feet behind the baseline to actually return their serves. And so I, I don't think he's winning any other majors but the French. That's my prediction now. And so, as far- Remind us where we are in the tennis calendar. Have we played all the majors for 2020 that we're going to see? We we're have. Australian yeah. 2021 is the next major? Correct. Australian okay. 2021 is the next major. Uh, Federer says he'll be back for the 2021 Australian um, Nadal, uh, you know, they still have the year-end championships, by the way. That's the next big, um, you know, that's the next big tournament coming up is the top eight players play at the year-end championship. Except the only, you know, the only lack of excitement about it is Djokovic has, because Nadal didn't play this week, Djokovic has already claimed the year-end number one. He could end up eighth out of the top eight players, and there's no real juice with this year-end tournament. Eric, I think we need a, a big three watch. We need an Eric Bradlow big three watch after every tournament because no one else is paying attention yeah. to the non-major tennis tournaments. But you can tell us. You can update us after every tournament with who's likely past their age peak and what are the chances. So and, let's uh, let's go ahead, Shane. Well, I just want to kind of, in, in context of that big three, as far as like kind of greatest of all time legacy, just kind of a simple question like, 
if joke if if nadal only play basically wins the french open from here on out and that's the only kind of way in which he kind of passes federer does that do you kind of feel like does that kind of strength like i mean obviously that's winning more tournaments is going to strengthen his legacy but as far as like a greatest of all time would you still kind of feel like federer because he was more well-rounded or well you know you could say i mean federer won only one french and he probably would have won zero if Nadal had, you know, both Federer and Djokovic are pretty much lucky to have a French Open, to be honest with you. Um, the, you know, uh, I would say that uh, the thing about Nadal, though, is he's played so well on so many surfaces at this point. I, I think the greatest of all time is between Federer and Nadal. And it's a strange thing to say because if you look at the head-to-head matchup, Djokovic has a winning record against both Federer and Nadal. I just feel when both of them were at their peak, if peak is determinant of who was the greatest, I think Federer and Nadal had better peaks than Djokovic did. So uh, we, we, we've got a major golf tournament coming up. So the, and an unusual one of that, a, a fall masters, no azaleas this year in Augusta. Um, but we do have um, uh, a, a great weekend of golf ahead of us. Um, college game day, by the way, college game day is going to be broadcast from there on Saturday morning. Uh, the big question is whether DeChambeau can do at Augusta what he did at the U.S. Open. And um, I'm curious what you guys are thinking. How much of this will you take in? I mean, the novelty alone, right? I yeah. Guess I, I, I mean, have you seen some of the photos that they've been kind of tweeting out and stuff like that of the foliage down there? Foliage. I think a fall masters. I mean, that course is already st- so, so incredibly beautiful, but it's going to be yeah. such a unique kind of beauty. I mean, you know, we should treasure this, you know, in terms of like, you know, seeing the masters kind of during fall foliage. I'm, I, so I'm, I'm going to be there just for the, you know, just for the aesthetic value of it, if nothing I, else. I think we have to ask us. I, I agree with you. I, I will obviously I'll be watching every hole, but I think you have to look at it a little bit differently, which is let's say the average professional golfer hits the ball 300 to 320, somewhere in that range. And that's good distance. And let's say DeChambeau, he claims he can hit 400 now. So let's say he hits an extra 70 or 80 yards off the tee. In some sense, let's assume that's true for the moment, okay? Like, do you already give him like a two or three stroke advantage per round? In other words, like, is he, it's a par 72. Is he basically playing like, two, if, if all else is equal and he drives it 70 yards farther, um, is he already two strokes ahead without, the, without anybody hitting a ball? Two strokes ahead on the tournament? No, I, possibly per round. I mean, let's take a course that's 7,200 yards. He's hitting it 70 extra yards. Obviously, there's some par threes. So let's say 12 holes. Let's say a 7,200 course plays like a 6,500-yard course to him. Maybe to him, this plays like a par 70 because of how far he can hit the ball. I'm just saying, if he wins this tournament because he's bombing 400-yard drives, which means he could drive a number of the par fours, the par fives, he may be hitting a wedge into a 500-yard par five. I mean, for sure, he could probably dial it back into 370 off the tee, and then he's got a 130-yard shot into a par five. So you got to wonder, like, how much per round stroke differential does his distance give him? And it's worth noting, too, that, I mean, I think the kind of – the you you know I mean to the extent that there's a penalty for that extra distance, which is accuracy, it's going to be an even more open version of Augusta than it usually is because there's not going to be any crowds. Well, that's another that's another great thought. And let me also say, the big question they have is 
how are they going to cut the rough at the Masters? So apparently, they're saying they're, they've deshambowed the Masters right now, which means they've left the rough heavier than normal. And so if he hits the ball 400, but his angle is off by five degrees, and now all of a sudden he's 400 into a massive pile of rough, he might rather be 350 or 320 in the middle of the fairway. So that's, I think that's the big question everyone's asking. Are they going to cut the, cut the uh, rough to where it normally is? Are they going to leave it longer? Eric, let me try to give you a statistical answer to the question you're asking, which is what is the stroke advantage to that kind of distance? And I'm not going to be able to give it directly, but maybe we can work our way into it. There's an outfit called Data Golf that's getting into this game, data analytics in golf. And um, I know some folks involved, and they're pretty serious, pretty serious people, but they've got a great post up right now called a data-driven history at Augusta National. Data Golf. Data-driven history of Augusta National. I saw this from Jake Nicholas, by the way. Jake is a longtime uh, guest of our show. They estimate the impact of changes in distance, even at the whole level at Augusta. So, Eric, being the the deep golf person I know you are, you'll enjoy going through and saying, "Okay, okay, let me give you the number. The, the hole at which distance provides the biggest advantage is number fifteen. It's that, that, that's the one I would have guessed. Late so par just five. Everybody knows it's a par five. It's a little over maybe five hundred and ten yards. There's water in front of the green." but you can blast it down there really far and then have a short wedge in. Okay. So i got a couple of questions for you. Um, they're going to give us the answer in a way that you guys would appreciate. So they'll say for every one standard deviation and in, increase in distance, what is the improvement in score in standard deviation? All right. So that's how score they're on that hole or score for the round hole by a uh, score on that hole. Okay. Um, so they say across all holes in golf, one standard deviation increase in distance is good for a 0.025 improvement, standard deviation improvement in score. Okay, so it's pretty small, I believe, but we need to know what a standard deviation of, uh, in, on a score. Well, I can of, give you some idea. Good. Let's say, you know, using the normal rule, probably the shortest, hit, this is just an approximation, the shortest hitter in golf may hit it 280. The longer hitters tend to hit it 320. So 40 yards covers most of the, let's say 50 yards, let's say 60 yards covers most of the thing. That would say the standard deviation is about 10. That would say DeChambeau may be hitting it six standard deviations above the average. Oh, that sounds way too much. Doesn't well, that gonna, no, too no. Much? It's an empirical fact that if I look at the average driving distance from 280 to 340, I guarantee you I cover every golfer playing the Masters except for DeChambeau. 280 to 340, guaranteed? Uh, guaranteed. Everybody but DeChambeau. Oh, I mean, I'm leaving out, by the way, Sandy Lyle and these 70-year-old yes. guys that won the Masters in 1960. If I'm um, looking at the current pros, the average driving distance is between 280 and 340. I probably could even make it narrower. Okay. And you're saying then the rule is standard deviation is one-sixth of that range? Correct. So that would mean and 10. I think what you have wrong is he's not going to average 400 yards. So you're giving him too many standards. I didn't say 400. I said if the average is three, 300 to 310, he may average 360 or 370. Okay. And you're okay. So I still can't believe that he's 60. No, but let's just do the math. If that's four. right, and using your math, five times point oh, my, my guess of two strokes may not be that off. Five times 0.02 something is about 0.1 per hole times 18 holes. But I know it's not every hole. It's not every hole, but I might, it might be a stroke and a half. Put it that way. Well, hold on. You didn't give us the translation of standard deviations in score to strokes. Well, you just did. You told me it was 0.02 something. 0.025 standard deviations. Oh, I thought you said one standard deviation was worth 0.025 strokes. 
Nope. One standard deviation is worth 0.025 standard deviations. So now we got to translate that. Oh, in score? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, that's a little different then. That's a little, a little different. I'm, also gonna, I'm gonna pipe in here, guys. Oh, hold on, real, real quickly, then I'll shut up about this. But so it's gonna be a little more modest than that here. I think six is too many standard deviations. I think 0.025 standard deviations is a lot less than 0.025. Well, it's not that much less. Well, 0.025 uh, per whole basis is less than a stroke. But um, the other thing, Eric, is that these things bounce around a lot per hole. We started out with the, the, the hole on which distance is most advantageous. That's number 15. Right. But, you know, we can all the par threes, it won't make much difference. So we can, we can kind of work through this. It's, a, it's an interesting big picture story for Augusta this weekend. But I also just want to pimp a little bit uh, Data Golf. They've got a great site up there, and Jake Nicholas brought good attention to it. I'm sorry, Adi, jump in here. Yeah, I just want to say I, I would probably disagree strongly that DeChambeau is six standard deviations above average. Right. Um, I don't know for sure, but I, I would guess the average is something like maybe three to four standard deviations more than than uh, than, than the other players. The second thing is, this is always just a general lesson about statistics. Um, most of our assessment with linear models, and undoubtedly they're doing something linear, works pretty well within the standard deviation right. of the mean. When you start to extrapolate far out that edge, and, and Deschambeau is an extrapolation, then you get you can get some kind of funky results. Um, so I, I would wonder whether or not um, it, it's it, it, you would actually take six, even if it is six, and multiply it by um, by the coefficient because I, I doubt it is it actually would work out there. That's a that's just a that's good old statistic lesson. Yeah, I, I, in fact, that was Jake Nicholas's comment on Twitter. It's like I wonder how much of this is linear extrapolated. Like you, you might you at distance you could imagine it going both dist- directions. Frankly, like. It could be that going from 320 to 340 isn't as advantageous as going from 340 to 360. The next 20 could be even more yeah. helpful. Right. You also, usually when you make these multiple regression models, you have to condition that accuracy isn't lost along the way. Um, so, and I don't, again, I don't know what's under their hood, but typically, and, and Eric, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, a more avid golfer than me, which is everyone, um, would know that as you go further in distance, you probably expect to see more variance in the angle, right? For sure. So that's that comes with the territory. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, it, it, it is just worth noting that Augusta specifically, this tournament, I think, is going to be less pen- penalizing in terms uh-huh. of accuracy than a lot of the kind of major tournaments would be. Augusta plays relatively wide open at the best of times and certainly is going to play even but more wide open this time. Let me also add one more thing. And Adi, I agree with you. Um, the only issue, though, by the way, you can't look even at historical data because what just so you know, two quick things. What DeChambeau said he's been doing the last four weeks when he hasn't been playing is using getting his ball speed up to 200 miles per hour and using a longer driver. So he's added 40 more yards of distance since he last played. So if he was averaging 340, <laughs> he claims to be averaging 380. That's number one. And number two, your guys are probably missing the most important part. The way they design the golf course, and here's what I mean. If you take a look at the 15th, the reason why it's the biggest advantage is if you can drive the ball more than 350 yards, the bunkers are no longer in play. The trees are no longer in play because you're hitting it to where many people are hitting their second shot, like the members. And so actually, the reason why you can't just use historical data is the design of the course is designed for people that hit it from 280 to 340. The minute you can hit it farther than that, while your angle may be worse, all the trouble is in the designated zone. 
Yeah. So for example, 18, everyone knows 18 there. You've got that trap on the long left that people kind of hit just below and people think DeChambeau is going to be able to fly that trap. And so he's going to be, you got a huge landing area on the other side and a nothing wedge into the green. Are you implying that golf is about to be broken? Is that basically what I'm hearing? People have been talking about DeChambeau breaking golf all summer. That's exactly right. Yeah. And this is kind of the last, this is golf's last stand. Can Augusta, <laughs> can Augusta keep him from breaking golf? Yeah, because I'm so, so used to people complaining that baseball has been broken by the home run and football has been broken by too much passing. And now yeah. so your point, Adi, your point, Adi, is well taken. Any model that assumes linearity five, six standard deviations out, that's not realistic. So I agree with you. Whether he gets the five or six standard deviations out, I don't think you can just linearly multiply it by some advantage and then translate it. I agree with that. But I, I will stand by my comment, which is, again, he's going to be able to hit it past the trouble. Well, it's, so let's, let's take some picks on this then. So the odds, his odds right now, at least as of earlier today, was plus 800, so maybe one in nine or so. Dustin Johnson right behind him at plus 900. John Rahm plus 1,000. Rory at plus 1,300. Justin Thomas plus 14. Xander plus 15. Um, that, you know, one of the games we like to play is, guys, take, take the betting odds that give you 50% chance uh, implied, 50% chance of, of winning the tournament. So those top six or the rest of the field, which would you have? The betting odds suggest, at least without the – you know, without the uh, very unfair vig on these things, the betting odds suggest that that would be top six or the field. Which ones do you want? It's a compelling six, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, those are really good golfers. Um, I, I think historically, ten was was often what we were what we were seeing. Uh, so I will I'll take the field. Yeah, it's it's we're field betters in general. Does anybody want the the top six here? I'll I'll take the Deschambeau group. That's what it comes down to, right? Basically. Yeah. So tell us here, give us what are the, would you take DeChambeau? I mean, here, would you take DeChambeau at, at one to nine? You think if you had to bet that one way or the other, but you had to put, you know, a thousand dollars in that one way or the other, which way are you going to bet? It? I, I'll, I'll take him. I'll take him. I, I don't think I necessarily have a great rationale for it other than, you know, kind of wanting it to happen. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of cheering for it in addition to sort of thinking that like, you know, I mean, you know, I could rationalize that like he actually perhaps has a greater chance than that, but you know, betting odds are so uncharacteristic, you, you know, uncharacteristic as far as putting that much weight onto one player. So they're kind of shrunk back I think, a bit. Let me just build on something Adi just said quickly. Here's the thing with this Shambo and he's shown it even this year. I think he's bimodal. And what I mean, I don't mean in his distance. I mean the fact that he may hit it 400 yards at a straight angle. He may hit it at 400 yards at a 45-degree angle. So the reason I wouldn't take DeChambeau at that odds is you're assuming we're going to get the good DeChambeau. Mm. I've seen him play some horrific tournaments where he's ended up way back. And so I, I wouldn't take him. If you told me I was getting the good DeChambeau, or I told you I was getting the good any player, I would take them at much shorter odds than we have here. I think there's too much uncertainty in him. No, I wouldn't take him at nine to one odds. No, Eric, I think that's an interesting point because everybody's been impressed with how straight he's been able to keep his driver despite this distance. He's telling us he's added 40 yards to his driver, which Correct. is a little, a, a little hard to believe, but B, can he do that and keep his accuracy? And it's been remarkable that he's been able to do it to this point, but the, every step he takes out longer drivers, higher, higher speed, that's going to be tough. It's got to be 
tougher and tougher. So and again, that's one reason for skepticism. My earlier point, his point is, I require less accuracy because you stupid golf course designers built the courses for guys yeah. that hit it under 330 and I'm hitting it 370. Yeah, okay. I, I mean, and look, I give him credit for like rethinking the game and he's been doing that since he was in college. But the other thing about DeChambeau is putting hasn't been his forte historically. And he's worked on that and he's better than he used to be. But certainly Augusta is going to test his putting. And who knows? I mean, that's going to be, if that's enough to counterbalance, I don't know. Adi. Yeah, uh, the one and nine. Uh, can you get some historical context? Uh, where would Tiger Woods have been at his absolute best? One and four. He was he was at the he was he was actually winning one in four majors back in the day, and the and the and the market odds reflected that. Okay, well, then you know, five I might, to one I might actually go with one and nine just for the hell of it. That's a that's one to nine, so ten percent probability. All right, so here we got we got. I don't know. Maybe we can settle this up on the side, and it's not as much fun to. <laughs> take those uh, to short those long odds bets. But Eric and I are on the anti Tichampo side. You guys have him. We'll find out next week. Are, are you putting up the 10? <laughs> we're we're to figure out, we're to figure out the right stakes for this thing. Uh, we'll, we'll pull it up and we'll figure out a way to handle it. And we'll settle it up next week. All right, guys, that has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back. And- You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to the second half of Wharton Moneyball. Cade Massey, Eric Bradlow, and Adi. No, Adi's not here. Adi stepped away, but Shane is. Shane Jensen's here. We, uh, at the bottom of the show, have Michael Lopez from the NFL coming by to talk with us about all things NFL analytics as well as the Big Data Bowl. In this segment, going to catch up more on football. We have uh, moved into the part of the college football season with the full slate. And we're squarely mid-season on the NFL side of things. So excited to dive in a little bit more. Guys, are you paying any attention to college football yet? I know it's been a slow, staggered start, so it's a little bit unusual. But I think we're finally getting into some, some interesting stuff. Everybody's playing now. And interestingly, the playoff picture may be slowly emerging. I'm curious what's caught your eye in the world of college football. Well, I think that... But if you're looking at last week's games, I, I think the Clemson Notre Dame game had to catch a lot of eyes. It was a yeah. it was a tremendous game to watch. Um, I think when uh, Lawrence leaves Clemson, um, I think their next quarterback is pretty all set because the guy that played, I forget, <laughs> I, I, excuse me, I forget exactly his name, but I'm going to tell you, the guy looked like you know he'd be a top ten quarterback if he wasn't on Clemson, yeah. he'd be starting right now. Right. And, I was also, you know, you're always fascinated because we talked about this last week on the show, Kate, how much it was more NFL, but how much is a starting quarterback worth? And we started to think, you know, could I watch the game? Because I wonder if Clemson can even compete with Notre Dame without Trevor mm-hmm. Lawrence playing. And right. they could compete with Notre Dame. It wasn't their offense that was the problem. It's their defense we were wondering, um, I start to wonder about. Yeah, that's that was kind of the shocking thing to me. And I admired the way Notre Dame just kind of went right at them. And there were even multiple short yardage, critical short yardage plays. And you're like, are you just going to run the ball right in the middle of the Clemson line? I mean, who does that? And then they did it repeatedly successfully. You really had to give credit to those guys. And it didn't have much to do with Trevor Lawrence not being on the field. Now, they're down. You know, this is the weird thing about the season this year. A lot of teams are down here and there, got multiple players. It's really hard to make a solid assessment of them. But I think most people were a little surprised that Notre Dame hung with them as well, especially after Clemson came back and they got ahead late in the game and everyone's like, okay, you know, there we go, as we expected. But the Notre Dame um, 
Notre Dame figured a way to get it back. So it was fun. I'm not usually pulling for Notre Dame. That's kind of an odd seat to sit in for me. And I thoroughly enjoyed, you know, that was the first loss for Clemson, first regular season loss for Clemson in in three years, 36 games. It's like the fourth longest streak in the history of college football. That's a long streak. We're not used to seeing Clemson lose regular season games. Yeah, the the interesting part about that game is, you know, you expect, if I've got it right, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Notre Dame's in the ACC this year. So that implies to me that they're probably going to play again in the ACC championship game. Odds are. And then you end up, odds are, and then you end up in this really difficult problem of, let's call it early, late transitivity. Suppose Clemson now beats Notre Dame. So they've each beaten each other once. Do you take one of them to the college football playoffs? Do you take them both to the college football playoffs? Like, what do you do then? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is kind of my question kind of coming out. I mean, does this like does what's happened so far this season just kind of the funkiness of this season make us even more keen for an expanded college football playoffs? Are we basically just as you know equally keen to what we were before or less keen? What do you guys kind of think? Uh, I one, I'm pretty keen, so it's not going to move around yeah. very much. Uh, but two, I would I, I'm trying not to overreact to anything based on this college football season. I mean it's hard not to overreact to coaches you're frustrated with or coaches you think who've had enough time or programs that are just repeatedly underperforming, but we, we need to temper, we need to temper reactions because there's just so much strangeness and we need to temper forecasts. And so Eric, as you say, you know, it looks like Notre Dame and Clemson will be in the ACC final. Well, maybe, but we've had a lot of weird things happen already. And what happens if, you know, somebody has to, some other team loses, Notre Dame loses a bunch of people because of the pandemic or some other games are canceled by Clemson. I mean, any number of things can happen and we're not used to, and you know, like we talked about in the first quarter about the election, there's just so much uncertainty. We're not used to discounting what we're seeing with our eyes. I mean, we've been consuming Mm -hmm. college football our entire lives and, and drawing inferences based on what we see. And you got to kind of discount it all because there's just so much weirdness right now. I mean, Penn State's 0-3. And right. and what but why? So they've lost a couple quarter, they've lost a quarterback, they've lost a couple of running backs. And then who's to say what a team's psychology is? Yeah. When living with the pandemic for three months, and then they lose these players and they lose a couple of games. I mean, they're 19 years old and they're in this really strange world. And now they're behind, way behind what they expected to do. Is it any wonder? They might like not bring quite the effort they do otherwise, or or what Michigan season has been like so far. <laughs> I mean, is is that like like you know the you know uh, isn't in, are them losing to Indiana? Is that just some weird twenty twenty blip, or is there like a serious problem kind of going on with that program? Yeah, I, I, mean, I think there's a lot of people wondering that right that's now. That's right. That's right. And I don't envy Michigan folks who have to make that judgment because mm-hmm. they've got an opinion. And it's hard not to have that opinion strengthening and maybe it should strengthen some, but how much do you discount for the situation? And it's a, a, I don't know. I would say, I think the other surprising game from last week, at least to me was Florida over Georgia by the margin that it was. Right. Right. So these two, most people thought these two teams would be the top in the sec East and Georgia obviously has been the King there or the Prince maybe is a better way to put it in the sec East for the last few years. And here comes Florida and they're finally toppled them but they did it, you know, they did it pretty convincingly. And now it looks like um, we'll have a new, a new matchup in the SEC final for the first time. In, well, they had LSU last year, but mostly we've seen these Alabama-Georgia battles. Um, uh, the, 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 uh, speaking of the SEC and how much things have changed, I mean, this weekend, 
Alabama LSU. How many years have we been looking at that game and excited about that game? And this year is like avert your eyes. This could be ugly. I mean, man, oh man, how much change can we see in a single year? It's just remarkable. But you know, there are some positive stories. Florida is a positive story. By the way, do you guys know, I happen to, I'm just looking at it now. Do you want to take a guess? This is, by the way, the game is in Death Valley at LSU. Do you want to take a guess how much Alabama is favored by? Uh, I'm going to say more than 20. Yeah, it's 28 points. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's rough. That well, LSU's rough. defense, I mean, look, I, 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 I you just grant them so much latitude. They lost so many players to the draft. We None of us should have expected much out of them. Um, but it's it's a it's a long way for a team to fall that won a national championship less than less than a year ago. Um, do you believe in Cincinnati? Do you believe in BYU? Should we be talking about a Group of Five team in the playoff race? I mean, BYU crunched Boise State. That was supposed to be a big game. Cincinnati just keeps on winning. I mean, we've got some fun stories out there of teams that are outperforming expectations. I don't know whether it's going to be enough to bubble up into a different playoff bracket than we than we usually see. Well, how many, here's the question. How many one loss, like how many no loss teams, how many undefeated teams are going to potentially be standing now at the end of the year? We assume. Well, Eric, how- yeah, this is one, this is, uh, this is something that's unusual about this year because pretty much everybody's just playing conference play. There are a few exceptions, but we used to have all these interconference interconference games where some group of five teams are going to pick up some losses. This year, there's no group of five power five intercom, very little. And so you're going to have more undefeated group of five teams by that reason alone. Um, but, you know, that's, in, that's a, that kind of doesn't help them much because unless they can prove it against a power five team. Yeah, I just I, I don't I don't see a lot of room outside. You know, I mean, again, if we're talking about potentially two ACC teams going plus presumably Alabama and Ohio state, unless something dramatic. I, and I know I'm doing that thing. You hate, you hate at this part of the year where I'm just writing these teams writing like Ohio state and Alabama into the playoff. If I shouldn't do that already. If two ACC teams go, there's no uh, power. There's no, no you but you don't start. You don't start with that presumption. That's, yeah, that's, I'm not the question, that's not the presumption. I, I start with that presumption, but you shouldn't do that. Well, the, the stronger, if you're going to start anywhere, you'd start with Alabama or Ohio state. Um, but that's a fair question. So, guys, let's be real about this. You know, Massey Peabody, we're not even we're not even worrying too much about college football analytics this year because there's just too many unknowns. If you were running a sim to forecast who's going to be in this playoff and say you had some model of the committee and you just needed to bake in the uncertainty that comes with COVID protocols and who knows, fragile mind states of teams or whatever. If you were to just bake in that uncertainty, what would you do with it? I mean, when we say presume Alabama, presume Ohio State, what is your presumption? And how much weaker is that presumption this year than it would be a normal year? So say in a normal year, you'd say, ah, Alabama must be 90% right now, given that they're really head and shoulders shoulders above everybody else. Maybe they could lose the title game against Florida and still make it, right? So let's make Alabama 90% in a regular year and Ohio state's not going to be too far behind them. I mean, who's the second best team in the big 10 it's those it's weird. It's like the right. SEC and the, and the big 10 all of a sudden look like the ACC has looked for years where you have one giant way above everybody else. So give heck give Ohio state 90% on a normal year as well. Okay. I'm asking you how much do you want to back off that 90% this year because of this uncertainty we're waving our hands at and saying COVID protocols, fragile mindsets, who knows? What are you going to back those 90% down to? 
I think there's uncertainty, but I also think that I've not seen a year, at least recently, it's hard to tell, this is the uncertainty, but it's, I've not seen a year where there seems to be that great a separation. Like I think Alabama may be much greater than the rest of the SEC right now. I think Ohio State may be much greater than the rest of the Big Ten right now. And so you're right, there is uncertainty, but I, I just like, I think we all agree a one loss Alabama is almost certainly to go. I, they're not losing two games. I. No, there's no chance. They're not losing to LSU, Kentucky, Auburn, Arkansas. Maybe they lose to Auburn, but I mean, they're no. So, I mean, I, like, I think what we have I, to do is no, we have to temper the increased uncertainty with maybe there's just a bigger delta between them and the second and third place teams. Do you kind of feel conference. like off the field uncertainty? Do you want to pull back just because of that? Like, what if they actually have to forfeit a couple games because their whole team gets like COVID? Well, we would, they, would they still go to the chat? Would they still go to the playoff then, perhaps? Right. Well, I think this is one way that the SEC gets more credit than some of the other conferences. One, they're going to play more games in the Big Ten. And those games are going to generally be perceived as more difficult than any other conference. And so that's one of the reasons Alabama could probably drop a game or cancel a game and not be penalized as much as say an Ohio state. I think Eric's making a, a very fair point. I'm glad he said maybe they lose to Auburn because every year you should throw in that caveat. doesn't matter. You should say maybe they lose to Auburn because God knows Auburn does some weird things. Um, okay. Ohio state, Ohio state, normal year 0.9. What is the COVID discount on Ohio state making the playoffs this year? Well, here's the way I look at it. Maybe it's the wrong way to think about it. But from a statistical perspective, who's a deeper team, Ohio State or everybody else in the Big Ten? I think we'd agree Ohio State. Then the question is, there's no increased odds of Ohio State players getting COVID than anyone else. So assuming it's evenly distributed, then in some sense, Ohio, I'm going to come up with an argument and you guys trash me on it, a statistical (laughs) argument. You could make an argument, Ohio State should be even greater odds because every team has a likelihood of getting affected by COVID. Ohio State's second string players are better than your second string players. So the Delta gets larger, not smaller. That's my argument. Well, it's except, you know, okay, but you can still create scenarios like Ohio State has an outbreak right before the title game for the Big Ten. And so they have their second string players in against, I don't know, whoever was Constance's first string players. No, so, right. Like, so, I mean, you, you know, even, even though I agree that Ohio State is kind of the most sort of like on average hooked up to weather COVID compared to others, it's, it's the kind of the timing that I think, you know, timing adds is extra one part. uncertainty. Timing is one part, but I think the more compelling statistically is that there's a whole cadre of other teams. Maybe it's not the entire conference, but there's a lot of people who could step into their place. So it's one against a lot. But you could also make an argument. I mean, I know, Cade, you've talked about your guys' um, model building of the the decision-making body for the playoffs. Maybe they treat COVID like they have injuries in the past. And therefore, if Ohio State loses a game because they're, I'll use Shane's example, their second string team is playing Wisconsin's first string, the, the committee says, eh, so what? That's not anything. Well, yeah, I got, we get it. Their second string is not better than Wisconsin's first string. We get it. But you know what? Who cares? You could argue it's a justification for yeah. letting them in and, it, and saying, oh, you didn't underperform. You were just playing your second string. That's interesting. No, no. And I, and I totally agree. They could make that kind of justification or argument, but there's a lot of uncertainty about whether or not they would do that. And we're really so, just kind of arguing about the uncertainty right. part of it. That's right. Well, let me give you some numbers because there are some folks who are trying to forecast this thing. So ESPN is still producing a playoff predictor. This presumably is based on FPI and a simulation. So Paul Saban, tweeted this the other day so paul you can follow paul great follow he's an espn guy 
Bayesian statistician. Here's the numbers associated with ESPN's forecast of the playoff. Who's going to make the playoff? Alabama, 90%. Okay, I'm going to run down. You tell me what you think about these numbers. Well, can we just take them one by one and say whether we think that's a reasonable prediction? Alabama, 90. I know we like that one. Ohio State, 74. Now, I think that's good because I think they've got it discounted a little bit, which I think is wise. Who knows what's going to happen? We haven't seen as much of them. Alabama, we've seen a lot more football from, so we believe in them. So I'm going to give them a pass on Ohio State. Um, Notre Dame, 46, and Clemson, 45. All right? Those are the next two, and they're right on each other. It's a little – what, What's interesting – sorry, go ahead. Yeah. What's interesting no, about you, that – yeah, I was going to say what's interesting about that is the, if I told you one of them was in, though, you would change the other dramatically. Yeah, they're, they're very cut, tightly correlated, right? Because, I mean – the, the the sum of the two of them should really be like, you know, I mean, they're not independent, but one of them is definitely going, right? So, mm-hmm. so it's, it's kind of a weird thing to, to kind of think about them both slightly below 50 because it's really kind of like, yeah, which you know, are going to swing in opposite directions. What Shane and I are basically saying is um, the sum of the two of them should be somewhere near one. But if I told you one, it's one minus that probability for the other. But you, but you don't. So you got a probability on one. And so it gets muted. No, I get it. And, so and yeah. basically the assessment is if Trevor Lawrence had been playing, I mean, Notre Dame won, I think it was overtime or double overtime, whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they were about even. So e- equal. I have, let me just say, let's talk about different aspects. I have no trouble that the two of them in total sum to somewhere near one. I have no trouble with the fact that both those probabilities are fairly equal. Got it. All right. So let me give you a few more to round it out. This one surprises me. Next one down, Wisconsin at 41%. So Wisconsin had a couple of, they played one game with that two cancel. We've only seen one game from Wisconsin. Also, you're putting a lot of probability on this. Yeah. I guess you're saying there's some chance that they managed to win the big 10. That's for, yeah. I mean, I I think they're getting, they're getting all, all that probability they sucked out of Ohio state. It's going to Wisconsin. That's right. That's right. All right. Let's drop on down the board. This is the leader and the only, well, there's another rep from the PAC 12, but Oregon at 27%, BYU at 23, very different ways of getting in here. I mean, Oregon, people are big on Oregon. They were real big on Oregon before some guys decided to sit out, but we're only going to see seven games from those guys. Can they be impressive enough? I think they might be able to. If you can win seven games impressively, and if, no, and if you know, say Clemson blows Notre Dame out of the ACC championship, maybe you look across and say, well, let's give these guys a chance. They won the Pac-12. Let's not be too hard on them on a pandemic year. Um, let me just round it out. There are your boys, the, the Florida Gators, Eric, coming in at 18%. And here's an even more your boys, Eric, Cincinnati, a group of five school coming in at 10%. And then SC, they're giving, there may be if SC around the table, somebody would be impressed. I like Cincinnati with 10%. Is there any chance a group of five team gets in there? I guess a lot of, a lot of uh, dominoes have to fall a certain way. Yeah, I just I'm, don't see, I don't, don't see this being the year because again, as you're pointing out, besides that there's less games, which means there's less, top teams to fall off because they've lost competitive games. Cincinnati's best win. I mean, I'm just looking at their schedule right now. Their best win is going to be against SMU. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, mean how are you going to do that? I mean, this just isn't the year for that. I'd love to, I, if they're undefeated. Yes. I'd like to their only them. path is really in a, in a situation like a normal season where they play games against sort of like, you know, the power teams and, and, and dominate them basically. Yeah. All right. All right, guys. Well, that's enough. We haven't talked in depth about college football in a while. We got all the teams going. We're getting deeper in the season. I thought it'd be fun to do so. Thank you to Paul Saban and ESPN for cranking out some numbers. Glad somebody's trying to forecast this crazy 
playoff race. Um, NFL, anybody pay yeah. any attention? Yeah, no, I paid a lot of attention. It wasn't good. I, I wasn't pleased with what sadder, I saw. But has there been a sadder Monday night? How long has it been since we've had such a sad Monday night game? We're recording. Oh, on it was bro- it was ugly. It was ugly. I mean, you know, I guess it was kind of fun to see Nick Folk win it at the end. But I mean, ugh, unbelievable, brutal, brutal. It was, fun, it was fun in the end, and and the Pats won in the end. And you got to be sad for the Jets. They got so close. <laughs> but oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, all right. That wasn't, that's not the top of the NFL agenda over the weekend. What did catch your eye? Well, I mean, it's just as sad, but I mean, New Orleans completely dominating Tampa Bay. I mean, that's one of the worst games I've ever seen Brady play actually. Um, so what, and I mean, I don't think it's just on him, but, uh, but it was, it was very bad. It was yeah. Ugly. So let me give you my assessment again. And this will be consistent with my assessment of Brady over the last, let's call it three or four years. I've said from the beginning there's a, there's a formula for beating Brady over the last four or five years. Pressure up the middle. Now, why is that? Because his arm strength is good, but it's not great. He can't throw off his back foot the way he used to. We know he's not as mobile. He can't get out of the pocket the way he used to. He can't throw on the run the way that he used to. And the way you do that isn't from the sides where Brady can step up. It's up the middle. That's what the Giants did in both Super Bowls. So what the Saints did, and by the way, the, the, the number one rated offensive lineman on the box, Ali Marpet, who's going to the Pro Bowl, was out. So all the Saints did was force all of their rushers right up the middle. Brady could not step up and throw. And what you see also is, this is also a criticism of Bruce Arians' offense. They don't have the um, Alvin Kamara who catches a five-yard pass and breaks it for 50. They've got big receivers that take time to get open. And when there's pressure up the middle, there's no time to get open. So I think, the lo- forget this game, the longer-term concern, if you are the Buccaneers, is how are you going to beat a team that provides you, that has a very strong defensive line and pressures you up the middle. That's the concern you have to have at this point if you're the Bucs. It's amazing to me to hear you talk about the Bucs this way, though, after hearing the raves for all the weeks that we've been following the season so far. And it's like, and then one loss is like, oh, and now you're, no, you're no, so no, clear. No, 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 I just weaknesses. said, no, no, no. Oh, no you, I'm saying from a, I'm not, it's not the end of the world. The Bucs are going to have to figure out, though, yeah. how, look, they lost to the Bears. What's the Bears' strength? Strength rush up the middle. They're going to have to figure out. And by the way, now that they've lost twice to the Saints and they're one loss behind the Saints, you might as well call them two back. You start to question, can they get the number one seed in the Mm -hmm. NFC now? Can they even win their division? No, no. Two two games and a game in hand behind the Saints is probably a deal killer at this point. By the way, I mean, so one – we see, I would claim that we see these kinds of blowout losses by good teams, like good teams, you know, incurring them on a not infrequent basis. No, that's true. Yeah. That that's these right. 35 losses that seems just like so unbelievably fundamental. It's like, yeah, it happens sometimes. So I would not in any, in any way. Um, well, how much did Massey Peabody drop the Buccaneers this week after the loss? Let me ask you a question. And relatedly, if the Bucs had lost 14 to three, would it have been a massive difference? I don't, you know, it's not based on the score. It's based on more micro level data than that. We did drop them a lot. We dropped them four spots and three points. And so that's a lot. It's a pretty big move. We have them down to number nine. You know, they've been drifting around five for a while, but look also. I mean, Brady had the fifth lowest QBR in that game. 
I think. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> quarterback performance matters so much, and so there's some, there's some updating. Even if it's just one game, it's going to update some. But how about those Saints? I mean, we've been on the Saints from the beginning of the season. It's nice to see things work out that way, and we jumped them. I mean, they jumped two and a half points. I mean, they were number mm-hmm. two. They've been floating around number one, but they jumped two and a half points in the one week. That's a pretty big that's a pretty big move. What about who else is up there? So KC is up there still um, you know, looking good, but you don't like their defense. Yeah. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. You know, I watched that game and their defense is not particularly good. And, and by the way, I'm not sure it was that great last year either, um, but they can afford to give up 24 to 30 points in a game and they're yeah. going to win that game. And, and they so could give up 35. I, I don't think yeah, their defense doesn't have to be that good. It doesn't have to be that good. And yeah. you know, in some And I guess that's the argument we're giving for Seattle too, is that their defense, which does not seem to be that very good, doesn't actually right. necessarily have to be that good this mm-hmm. year. It's, well, it's kind of a weird position for Seattle specifically to be in, given right. kind of like, you know, what we know them they're famous for. But what did y'all make of did didn't they didn't Seattle lose to the Bills? They this did. is like, you yeah. know, I mean, how serious are the Bills? You're you guys are you guys are AFC East people. How, what are, are we finally believing? Where are we on Buffalo? I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I certainly consider them one of the best teams in the AFC. I, I can't, you know, given some of the games, you know, I mean, they ba- did barely beat the Patriots um, <laughs> and they lost, got kind of trounced by the Titans. So they've looked, they've also had games where they've looked bad, but I, I, I concede any team will do that. Um, I just, again, I, I can't, I feel like their, their ability to kind of repeat their success is, is less than something place like, you know, like a team like Casey. So, I mean, I kind of put them still as I think they'll be kind of contending, but I, I don't, I would not predict seeing them in well, the AFC well, let me championship ask you something, game. Shane, you've been positive. I think, I think if I've got it right, you've been positive on the Steelers from the beginning. Yeah. And, you know, between the Steelers, the chiefs and the Ravens, how do you see that all going down? Uh, I mean, I, th- I I would have the you know if I had to rank them, it would be um, Chiefs, Steelers, um, and then Ravens. But I mean, in, in any given Sunday, certainly, I would not be surprised by any one of those three teams kind of coming out of it. Um, you know, my a I guess my my as we sit here now, my AFC Championship prediction is Steelers versus KC. But uh, if you told me, you know, in part because I think Steelers are probably going to be playing more home games in the playoffs than the Ravens are at this point. But um, but I mean, if you if you told me it was the Ravens going through, I would not be surprised. by How that. much how much do you put, you know, an interesting stat? It's not it's just it's a simple stat. Um, the Lamar Jackson has now played 30 games as a professional 30. He started 30 games. He's 25 and five which is the best start in an NFL career tying Dan Marino. So they're both 25 and five in their first 30 games. And I ask you guys a question. Is he any good? Like there's this narrative out there that, you know, he's improving, but is he going to be good? So that's my question. Can he win the big game? I think he can, but I mean, I think he certainly, I think it's not just him, but the team is so oriented towards being this awesome powerhouse when they're ahead and kind of struggling when they're behind. So he's not, you know, we're not going to put him in the same category as somebody like Mahomes or big Ben that can like kind of, you know, can basically come back and win a game until he actually proves he can. Yeah, do that. They, they have to prove it. He's obviously in a, no. in a, in another world in many ways, but he has to prove it in these big games. And, 
Um, until then, I think it's fair to, to be skeptical. And it, it's not just put it on him. It's, it's the team. It's the system. Yeah, it's, it's the whole the focus of call. the offense it, and defense. There was plenty of criticism yeah. to go around after that Tennessee playoff game last year. Unfortunately, we're not going to see a lot of interesting stuff this next weekend, but we'll come back and talk about NFL many more weeks before the end of the season. That has been the third quarter. Guys, we still have a quarter to go. Come back for a conversation with Michael Lopez. More NFL talk. One of our favorite guests. Back. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. This is our interview segment, typically, and it is today. We're delighted to welcome back to the show, longtime friend of the show, Michael Lopez. Stats by Lopez. How many of us first got to know him? His handle on Twitter, Stats by Lopez. Michael, former stats prof, probably still stats prof. It is a full-time job. His, his main job these days is, we'll, get, we'll let him give you the title, but he's basically ushering the NFL and NFL community into the advanced analytics age. Michael, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Cade. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, Eric. Uh, and thanks, Adi, who's who's not with us. But the yeah, director of football data and analytics is the is the job title. But you know, our our job is or my job is to use data to understand and enhance the game. So it's it's an exciting time to be a part of football data and and happy to to sort of work with the league to to make that happen. So remind us how long you've been in this new position. Uh, two and a half years at this point. Two and a half years, um, which means you're into your third season. Uh, I've had the I've had the idea recently that we we've talked with you we've talked with you a few times. One of these days, I want to talk to the person who decided to hire you. That's that's kind of more interesting in some senses. Who is it there in New York who had the bright idea? We love this idea to bring you in, and they've really I mean to the outsider, it looks like they've really embraced this whole thing, and and, and really in a way other leagues haven't. You guys aren't just passively along for the ride on this analytics wave. You guys are actually encouraging things. I'm not sure how much of that predated you or, or how much you've catalyzed. Well, I mean, I think even, even from the commissioner on down, uh, there, there's been a push for using data and analytics. And, you know, I was hired in, in football operations, but at the same time I was hired, there was also a, a group that was hired to maybe do more league level data. So um, uh, sort of on the media side, maybe on the, the TV rating side and, and like social fan databases stuff that, that I stay out of. So, you know, I, I think it was a league wide push. I just sort of happened to fall in the, the group that gets to have the fun type of data. Uh-huh. Well, so tell us about those fun data. We, we, we I think that a lot of it gets under, under the umbrella of NGS or next generation statistics. How would you describe the fun data that you're playing with these days and helping others? Play with? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's just such a, a new data set, this next gen stat stuff. And I mean, I, I would say we, I, we probably spend about, I don't know, 40% of our time using next-gen stats and maybe 60% using traditional football data. And I think each year that I've been at the league office, that is, got, we've gotten more and more towards next-gen stats. And, and in essence, because we're thinking of better questions that we can ask. And, mm-hmm. you know, when we first get the data and we're first looking at it, it it's it's ominous. It's threatening. It doesn't, there's there's nothing that tells you what to analyze. There's no easy variables to, to group by or to filter into. And you have to do all that yourself. And uh, as we watch more and more games and, and sort of get comfortable with the data, we now realize the newer questions we can ask. So this plays into one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you today, which is the big data bowl. You guys are doing this for the third year. And can you talk about the origin of the idea and the roles that it plays and you see it playing within the NFL? Because on the one hand, it's a hackathon of sorts. And, but a lot of organizations have hackathons. 
it feels like you guys are using it to accomplish more than just, you know, giving the kids something to play with. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's value in, in giving kids something to play with, but I also think from our perspective, there's a, there's a business value uh, to have, you know, for us to be able to crowdsource uh, data ideas and realistically, part of the reason we're doing it is, is for us, right? We, we get value out of the algorithms. We get value out of the winning solutions. We get, our, our teams get value out of seeing the new ideas that, that folks are going to come up with. And so it's kind of a, a, a two-way street in the sense that, yes, it, it sort of serves the, the purpose of fans that, are, that want this data and want to get new insight from this data and play within themselves. They're able to do that, and that's exciting. And this, the second reason is, is for our teams. And, and obviously at the league office, we're working for our clubs and with our clubs and, and they want not only the new ideas, but they also want to know folks that can analyze the data so that they could potentially hire them. And so being able to provide that, that pipeline and help them, you know, sort of not only generate ideas, but also the folks that they know that they can bring on board that will be able to analyze that data uh, is, is sort of a, a big part of why we're doing it. That's something that many folks may not understand that, People have been hired into the league because of their performance in this data bowl. And that's, that's really neat. It's neat for the teams, but it's also neat for the, the people, obviously, who are looking for ways in. A lot of people want these kinds of jobs. Well, here it is. Open doors. Anybody can come. Come show us what you got, and that'll boost your chances of getting a, a start in the league. Yep. And I mean, I don't, I don't even think it's just football teams. It's, 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 right. it's going to help you get a job in, in any sport. Uh, and obviously we want folks to do it and, and stay in football data. Um, but whether it's another sporter or maybe it's even working for a, a vendor that's working with NFL clubs or NCAA clubs yep. that's using tracking data. You know, if you can work with football data, you're going to be able to work with the, the same similar type of data in other sports. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Michael, just this Eric Bradlow, just a quick question. Um, if you had to say specifically either a specific problem that has been solved either through next the next generation of data or a specific problem that uh, somebody in the data bowl has actually solved could you give us an example of one i mean without giving away any secret sauce like what 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 are the problems and why has the new data helped you uh, solve those problems well i mean i think ultimately we've always been a little bit perplexed with how to analyze running backs and that's a, that's a big part of our theme from last year's big data bowl was, was rushing yards prediction. And part of it was just because we really, we knew what we had wasn't working. We yards per carry um, expected points added on run plays when probability added, we just, we weren't good enough. And we don't necessarily know what the, the upper bound is of, of how good we could get in terms of analyzing running backs, but we knew we had to do better. And so part of what we were, were doing last year was using the player tracking data at handoff, and knowing the player's speeds and the, which you can sort of from that, that speed and, and, and direction and their, their coordinates estimate sort of an ownership or, or different, you know, sort of characteristics of a run play, try to better understand what the running back was seeing. And, and part of that was just from us watching the games and saying, you know, I know on this carry, this running back never had a chance, or I know on this carry, this, this running back had an easy first down that, you know, Mike Lopez could have picked up and, and just being able to match that with film and, and, you know, giving the, the teams a tool to, to maybe improve their uh, evaluation of running backs and, you know, even better, uh, or maybe not even better, but at the same time, giving it to our networks who are now able to use that metric on the air. And, and we've seen that on, on NBC and ESPN this year, where, where they're sort of sharing some of that information. And that's, that's kind of a cool to see that come to fruition. Michael, I think you've just pointed out that there's some, there's some un, unharvested fruit here. You could go for the, the, uh, the achievement over, Michael Lopez measurements like you could 
drop in there a running back who is running at the Michael Lopez speed and show that's, that's, that's that distance. And this guy is that much better. That would be fun animation for us all to see. Michael. That would be, it could be the new VORP or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Value over replacement value over Lopez. It's, it's a really a lot of room here. Well, my dad was a football coach and he was my football coach. And he used to tell me when I was running sprints that he needed a calendar to time me. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I think most yeah. folks are going to be hot positive value there. So, Michael, could you talk to us? Let's stay on the running back example. Could you tell us how the league would use, like, let's assume you could come up with a better prediction model. I can understand how a team might do it to say, for example, um, I project this running back to get, let's say, three and a half yards in this carry. The running back got 4.7 yards for this carry. I could sum that up. I could compute this running back exceeded expectations. Maybe that helps me draft the running back. Maybe it helps me understand the characteristics of running backs. Can you give us a sense from a decision-making point of view, how this probability model turns into a decision support tool? Yeah. I mean, that that's one way is, is player evaluation. And I, I think a second would be team evaluation, you know, which teams are able to provide their ball carriers with the most space. Uh, and if you look at, maybe when you're comparing Christian McCaffrey and, and Mike Davis with Carolina this year, maybe there's some similarities, maybe there's some differences. Uh, Jordan Howard tends to get a lot of goal line carries. You can start to see how, how teams use different players. Um, e- even sort of like maybe more league level trends, you know, sort of the, the yardage expectation for wide receivers when they get handoffs on, on sort of those jet sweep type of plays versus, you know, a, a goal line back, you know, hammering up the middle trying to compare those in terms of uh, evaluating maybe more where teams are going. Uh, maybe some scouting stuff would, would play in there too. So I, I think it, it kind of lends itself to a variety of ideas. And, and uh, in fairness, we've kind of only had it for six months now. So trying to figure out exactly where we'll end up going with it um, mm-hmm. is, is still, you know, left, uh, left to the, an exercise left to the reader. This is Shane. Uh, I kind of, I guess, have a bigger picture question. Like, how do you get, kind of come up with the ideas for these for these data bulls? Like, is it, I mean, you know, it sounds like the running back, you know, the kind of evaluating running backs came out of like, you know, a very kind of obvious recognized need that the current techniques weren't really there yet for that. But are you just kind of keeping an ongoing list of things to do? Or is it like, you know, are there big brainstorming sessions about what the projects would be and who is kind of involved in that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. And I think the, there are more voices involved each year. Our, our first year, it was kind of like, you know, Jay Reed, who, who helps run the Big Data Bowl event with myself, we were kind of just like, all right, what would people want to do with this data? And, you know, three of the first five ideas were the themes of the first Big Data Bowl. Last year, it was very clearly a, a metric and a, a specific evaluation of running backs that we wanted to cover. Uh, th- for this year, we, um, I solicited feedback from all the NFL clubs that, that we're in contact with. We reached out and said, what are the metrics that you want? And uh, we, we kind of uh, led them towards really either doing linemen or uh, secondary uh, in, in large part because first big data bowl largely looked at pass attempts. Second big data bowl was, was running backs. So, you know, what's left uh, realistically, we got to do linemen or defense. So that's kind of where we're, we're going. We really understood at least in talking with some team staffers that there, there just was some uncertainty in how to use player tracking data to analyze cornerbacks and safeties and, and sometimes linebackers. So, you know, we, we don't really get information out of them ever because, you know, if they have, if they have secrets or if they have tools, they kind of want to keep them to themselves. Um, but, some of the most of the feedback was was pretty clearly in favor of looking at the secondary. 
it's so interesting to hear you in that role, Michael. It's like you guys are feeding information, you're trying to help the teams, and it's just a complete, it's a one-way channel. It's like you're not, you're giving them every secret you can come up with, and they're like, okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Can you give us secrets over here? Can you give us secrets over there? Um, Michael, <laughs> you're talking about the, the the contest this year. Tell us more specifically, because it has started, it is underway. Can you tell us more specifically on what the charge is that you're giving contestants? So we shared all passing plays from the 2018 season, specifically the uh, eligible receivers, the quarterback, uh, and any defenders that we would expect to be covering those, those players. Largely, we're not sharing lineman data because we want people to focus entirely on the, the secondary, and mm-hmm. we want them to be able to pick up on what are the tools that teams and, and uh, player personnel need to analyze players in the secondary and so it's a pretty open-ended theme you know we're thinking things like uh zone versus man coverage performance in man coverage performance in zone coverage maybe something like you know predicting defensive pass interference penalties tackle probability once a a pass is completed uh, what players or what types of players are best you know when the ball's in the air Uh, again those those are our leading questions um, but realistically you know, we're also expecting folks to come up with their own approaches and their own questions uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and us hopefully to, to sort of get new insight out of that. It sounds remarkably open-ended, which is, a, it's on the one hand, it's counterintuitive because already you said these data by their nature are open-ended. You know, they're highly unstructured, they're incredibly rich. And so it's kind of a mess, a mess that you walk into. A lot of people would go in and say, hey, let's focus on very narrowly. But you're actually saying, hey, just tell us what you learned about past defense. I think it speaks to how early we are in this whole world of NGS. We still don't yet know, you know, the right, the right question, the right approach. It's remarkable how much we don't know. It's one of the neat things about watching you guys over the last couple of years. It's like, we're going to put it out there. We're going to grow incrementally. It's almost going to be like the scientific progress. You know, we're going to put it, we're going to roll the ball forward a little bit this year and we'll start again next year. It's, it's, it's neat. I wonder to what extent your experience as an academic influences the whole process. Have you thought about it in that way? Uh, I think I've, I've thought, uh, yes, in, in, in part because part of the Big Data Bowl itself is to figure out what we can share with teams and what we want these people that are spending hours, dozens of hours, weeks, right, working at this data. Right, right. How do we want them to share their findings? What, what are the things we want them to focus on? And you know, certainly I think in year one, my expectation was that papers would kind of look like an academic paper where they had references and they, they sort of did a literature review. And, and now I realize, like, I mean, I don't ever really go into a presentation to the league office and say, here's a literature review of all the sort of stuff that's been done beforehand. We don't have that time. And quite honestly, people don't have that interest. So I think we, we've kind of, at least certainly in terms of the format, uh, of, of like where we're going and what we're hoping for in terms of presentations. We're, we're much more like, what are your best images? What can you share with us? Like, what are your, your high level takeaways? Um, and that those, I think in, intuitively will, will be the better submissions. Um, and it's up to, to sort of the judges and sort of the, the sort of folks at the league office in fairness too, to, to make sure that the underlying methods behind some of those approaches are, are valid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of, uh, and I, I kind of, I'm again coming back to sort of like how you come up with the kind of questions or, or problems for these uh, 
uh, data bulls, you know, it seems like you're kind of alternating, at least in your first few years, between kind of more open-ended, here's like a type of, you know, here's sec- here's root data, play around with it, here's secondary data, play around with it, versus, you know, last year when it was a much more kind of specific question and evaluation sort of scheme for running backs. Um and, you know, from an academic perspective, different people do kind of like work better under more open-ended versus more kind of specific tasks. Is there like a lot of, like, is that kind of part of your design that you guys make a conscious decision to kind of be like, this year is going to be a more open-ended thing. This year is going to be more specific or does it kind of just evolve that way? No, you're, you're totally right. The reality is last year by doing a live leaderboard on Kaggle, we were, and maybe we kind of knew this at the time, but probably I didn't appreciate it as much we were restricting the, the the folks that were going to win the contest, right? Because you have to be familiar with Kaggle. You have to be familiar with uh, sort of the upload process and, and some sort of like the, the very state-of-the-art machine learning tools that are going to get, you know, improve your log loss or whatever your, your target metric is by, by some incremental amount. And so by doing it on Kaggle and having that target, we are we are closing ourselves at least at, on the winning level to, 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 to view that audience. And, and this year, obviously we moved in a different direction and I don't know where we'll go in the future. I think balancing between those I, I think is appropriate. And it kind of depends on how, you know, what type of business and, and utility do we have out of uh, whatever metric we're, we're sort of having folks shoot for versus, you know, the, the sort of unknown area like we are doing this year and trying to balance a little bit of that is, is kind of what we're aiming for. Mm-hmm. Talking to Michael Lopez. Michael is, and I'm going to botch this. Michael, director of data and analytics at the NFL. They stole him from academia. He's been there. In, this is now his third football season, and he has been largely the man running the big data bowl. It's underway again, um, and we've been talking about the question they've asked. Pass defense. This is what they're interested in. What makes a good pass defense this year? Very open-ended question. How many participants do you expect to see? And Am I correct that you've created a, a student-only division so that the college students can come in and compete against each other, but you've got an open division as well, so you've got people from all, all walks of life? Yeah, to be totally honest, I, I really don't know what types of numbers we're going to get. Uh, last year, we had 2,200 people submit an algorithm, yeah. um, but it's much easier to submit an algorithm than it is to, to write a paper or to, mm-hmm. to sort of put your ideas and, and you know, we, we quite honestly didn't look at the details of those 2,200, so 200 of them might have been you know, a, a random number generator or something. Right. Um, you know, I think our, our goal is our year one, we had about a hundred submissions. Uh, and so we would like to be better than where we were year one. Um, I'd be surprised if we weren't. Um, but if, you know, if we have 2,200 papers that we got a grade, um, uh, I'm going to have a <laughs> pretty busy January. Uh, yeah. So that, that's, that's kind of the, the, the sort of numbers in, in terms of the audience, there are a couple of things we're doing this year. The, the prizes were up to 100,000 in the total prize pool, and we have different mm-hmm. categories. Anybody can enter the open category. Uh, we've also created sort of a subcategory for, for college folks, just because um, certainly the barrier to entry uh, or it might be a little bit intimidating to go into the open category if you're a college, mm-hmm. uh, college mm-hmm. student. We've mm-hmm. also this year for the first time launched a, a mentoring program where we've, we've paired uh, 16 folks. In this case, it's all women and or black African-American mentees. Mm-hmm. We've paired them with uh, team analytics staffers to basically work on a big data wall submission. So we have uh, 16 volunteers from our teams cool. that are working with these, uh, these mentees. And the goal is, you know, here are folks that want to get into football data. 
that are maybe a stats major or interested in data science or, uh, you know, a computer science person, and they want to get into football data and, and maybe, um, your, your sort of assistance can help, uh, help that along. And so that's a, that's something new this year that, that we're excited to have. As our, yeah, yeah. As our listeners are thinking about kind of the skills that one might need, can you give us a sense in terms of submissions Are you seeing most people use, you know, I'll say, it, is it R, is it Python? Is it, are you seeing people using kind of more traditional statistical models, machine learning, deep learning slash AI? What kind of methods slash programming tools are you seeing people use? Last year was much more machine learning based uh, in terms of um, uh, the, the top, certainly the top on the leaderboard. Most of them are all using some type of neural network. The, this year um, with a more open-ended theme and based on what we've seen so far, I think it'll be a balance of everything. Uh, and I think some folks will be, I mean, for, first, m- most, most everybody's using either R or Python. Uh, and at, you know, if I were to look across the league, I would say more teams tend to use R than use Python. If I were to look across the big data bowl, it's probably closer to 50, 50 split um, just based on, on where, you know, folks are, you know, background is. And, and certainly people that are on Kaggle maybe are more comfortable using Python than, than R, but that's kind of the tool that, that get, will get most folks started this year, once you, you sort of are familiar with the data wrangling and, and whatnot, it kind of depends on your idea uh, in terms of whether or not it'll be a modeling-based approach or, or something else. So, fellas, we, we're going to need to let Michael go and wrap up, but I'm curious what I'm curious what all of you are most excited about from this year's contest. I can I, I loved the question. I was very excited to hear that the, it's a pass defense question. I'm, I'm dying. I've wanted to know for a long time how much difference there is among players on the amount of space they can defend and therefore uh, how much less space their teammates have to defend. It's one of these interaction things where the, the, the defensive backs are so dependent on each other. If you've got one really good one, it frees the other guys up quite a bit. And conversely, if you've got some, the weak link really d- d- increases the load on everybody else. And I'm hoping we get some insight into how we can parse that because I think we're missing evaluations in the defensive backfield as a result. I'm curious as y'all think about this question and including you, Michael, what, what, are you, what are you most, just one thing you're most excited about that you hope might come from this year's contest? I mean, I, I, I would love to, I mean, it's kind of similar to what you're talking about, Kate, but like, you know, seeing some interesting work on just, you know, separation, you know, how, how, how much separation, like, you know, can kind of be, be uh, sucked up or, or created by different kind of defensive schemes and also like, you know, basically like individual player variability. Mm-hmm. Um, as a Pats fan, where our wide receivers appear appear not able to create it, I'm intrigued <laughs> by uh, I'm intrigued by the concept. <laughs> yeah, I'm just I'm I'm interested in um, as you were saying, you know, Kay, the example that's always been like the great defensive backs, whether it's been Deion Sanders, Daryl Green, etc. I'll take this half of the field so that the rest of yeah, my right. teammates can take the <laughs> other half of the field. Well, actually, is that true? Um, also, in some sense, you could also imagine defensive backs um, with high risk, high reward. So, you know, there are some that play well 95% of the time, but man, when they get beaten, they get beaten in a bad kind of way. So I'm also interested in kind of the distribution of success. And my guess is most defensive backs, except the elite ones, are not uniformly great. Michael, back to you to wrap us up. Well, I mean, we've we've tried to give a lot of different suggestions on on the Kaggle. The one the one thing that I, I mean, I've I've long been fascinated to to know at least from our perspective, 
like how do, how does this stuff link to penalties and whether or not we can use this at a league level to sort of say like this is the probability that this type of penalty would be called and on on pass plays you know there is there's the defensive pass interference offensive pass interference defensive holding illegal contact those are all sort of like really interesting sort of aspects, at least from a league level. And even from a team perspective, you know, what are the teams that are able to draw those penalties? What are the receivers that are able to draw those penalties? What are the defenders that, that don't get caught in those penalties? Um, and, you know, certainly we, we have the raw penalty counts, but also being able to look at the, the tracking data to figure out, is there additional insight there? That's, that's one thing that's kind of bugged me, uh, but, and, and maybe we'll get out of this year's contest. Uh-huh. Cool. Well, listen, we wish you the best with the contest. Love what you're doing. Love watching the work and always have uh, enjoyed the chance to visit with you about it. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Of course, Michael Lopez, Director of Data and Analytics at the NFL. Skid Moore Statistics Professor, advisor to many stats and football and sports analytics folks around the country. You can follow him. Great follow on Twitter at, um, at StatsByLopez, at StatsByLopez. That has been another Wharton Moneyball, another two hours on sports analytics. We do this every week for the whole crew, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, and Cade Massey here on the last segment. But Adi Weiner, of course, Maddie Daps, the boss man, Dion Simpkins, associate boss man. Appreciate you guys listening. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Wharton Moneyball. Delighted to welcome to the show longtime NBA player Shane Battier. We live in the probabilities, and you have to take a probabilistic view of basketball because there's so much randomness. Makes and misses, for the most part, are random. The bounce of a ping pong ball, which determines whether you get a great draft pick or not, is random. You'd have to put yourself in a position to give yourself the best chance of success. And whether that happens or not, it's luck. Wharton Moneyball, Wednesdays, 8 a.m. East on 